Hey, Crossings Podcast community. This teaching is called Early on the First Day and is the 22nd teaching in our John study. It was taught by Molly Conaway and Mark Nelson on April 4th, 2021. Thanks for listening. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciple set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So you have three characters in these first seven verses. You have Mary Magdalene, you have Simon Peter, and you have the one whom Jesus loved that we, that we now know as John. And for some reason, when John was writing all this down in this gospel, he was like super focused on the process of how everyone got to the tomb in the first place. He wants us to know that they were like running and he wants us to know how people placed in this foot race. So Mary gets there first, as girls do, and she sees the tomb empty and she ran back to the boys and then they all went running. And I don't know, maybe John gave up booze for Lent and he was like in better shape, but it says that John got there first. And and as he approached the tomb, he did what I would probably do if I approached an empty tomb. He like kept his distance and like peeked in and observed the surroundings. And then Simon Peter, very true to character, runs in last, huffing and puffing, out of breath. There's no waiting, no beating around the bush, runs straight into the tomb. I mean, I'd be like, dude, what are you doing running right into the tomb? This is what it says. The other disciple, John, who reached the tomb first, also went in. And he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scriptures that he must rise from the dead. So they didn't know the end of the story. Then the disciples returned to their homes. And verse 11 says this, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been laying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, She said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabbani, which means teacher. So while the boys went home, scared and confused, Mary stayed. She stayed to cry. She stayed to ask questions. It was all just so tragic. I mean, she was desperate. There's this Lutheran priest, Nadia Boltz Weber, who, who gave a sermon at the funeral of Rachel Held Evans, uh, author and her friend. And at that funeral, she read this passage in John, which is a, a strange passage to read at a funeral. But, 
But Nadia Boltzweber kept coming back to this question asked of Mary, woman, why are you weeping? Woman, why are you crying? And she interprets this question not as a like passive aggressive judgment, not as some sort of scolding against Mary's tears, but more like an invitation. Woman, why, why are you crying? I mean, it's a holy question, isn't it? Why, why are you yourself crying? Why do you find yourself weeping? I mean, I find myself weeping because we live in the richest nation in the world and our minds and our hearts and our bodies can't keep up with this monster we've created. I, I find myself weeping because we can't seem to agree or get along about what basic human dignity means. We, I find myself weeping because babies just don't develop and the best of women can't get pregnant. I, I find myself crying because mass shootings happen every day. I find myself crying because it's the morning of the third day and it's dark out and it's just been so chaotic and confusing and so much has been lost. Woman, why are you crying? And after this question, Jesus does not give Mary some motivational speech to like see things on the brighter side. He doesn't give her some kind of unempathetic, well, at least comment. Jesus gives Mary himself, our God who's familiar with tears, our God who's familiar with darkness, gives us himself. And he right invites us into a practice, a way to visualize this scene. It's going to be here on the screen. This stunning invitation comes as Mary acts out one of the oldest dramas in the world. Stand with her as she weeps. Think of someone you know or have seen on television or in the newspapers who has cried bitterly this last week. Bring them too and stand there with Mary. Don't rush it. Tears have their own natural rhythm. Hold them, the people, the tears in your mind as you stand outside the tomb. And then when the moment is right, stoop down and look into the tomb itself. When people are afraid, angels tend to tell them not to be. But when people are in tears, angels ask why. Say it out loud. Whoever you've brought with you to stand there, listen to them say it too. They have taken it away. My home, my husband, my children, my rights, my dignity, my hopes, my life. They have taken away my master. The world's grief, Israel's grief concentrated in Mary's grief. You know, I get the hint that Mary didn't stop crying when she realized Jesus was Jesus standing right in front of her. If Mary was anything like me, she probably started crying even harder. I mean, tears can be very holy and revealing things. So let's get back to the boys. Verse 19 of chapter 20, this is on the screen. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace or shalom be with you. So the boys went back home. Um, that could probably be the title of a Beyonce song. The boys went back home and they locked the doors. And with the doors locked, Jesus appears, which is like so creepy. 
And Jesus says, peace be with you. And Jesus shows him his hands and shows him his side and gives him some instructions. And then we meet another character in the story in verse 24. But Thomas, one of the 12, was not with them when Jesus came. We don't know where he was. He was just like not answering his texts. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he, Thomas, said to them, unless I see the marks of the nails in his hands and I put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. So a week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them. I imagine them were like, Jesus, that's still super creepy. And he said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet who have come to believe. So Thomas is introduced in this scene and, you know, Thomas gets a bad reputation as, you know, doubting Thomas. It's a bad reputation because, I mean, that's, that's probably what I would have said. I, I probably would have said, okay, prove it, guys. Like, I'm actually thankful that for Thomas, like someone had to say that. And Jesus comment to Thomas, do not doubt, but believe. I, I don't read this as a threat or a condemnation. If it was, I don't think Jesus would have come back and waited around for Thomas. Jesus really didn't seem to mind Thomas's doubt. Thomas's doubt was worth coming back for. N.T. Wright says that this isn't a rebuke to Thomas. It's, it's just an encouragement for those who come later. That faith is not something we are able to prove. We can't literally put our finger in Jesus' side and say with certainty, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, it's because of that we are blessed. We are blessed because it's our courage to wrestle with the questions and the faith and the doubt. It's our, it's our ability to, to journey and finding our way back to God anyway. Barbara Brown Taylor says it this way. She says that one of her favorite teachers says that if you are still breathing, there is more right with you than wrong with you. Thomas puts it more forcefully. Once he had seen the marks on Jesus' body for himself, my Lord and my God, he said, and he wasn't the missing disciple anymore. Thomas was back, a week late, but back, and Jesus didn't seem to mind coming back for him alone. So take a breath, you faithful ones, still here after all these years, the week after, the week after that, and all the weeks to come. Blessed are you who have not seen and yet have come to believe. You know, I think there's sometimes this pressure on Easter Sunday to feel and to think certain things. And Mark is going to teach the rest of this here in a minute. But I sometimes think Easter has this connotation that, that it's supposed to be a party and we're supposed to be happy and like plastic Easter eggs are going to fall from the sky. And, and sometimes we do feel that stuff, the joy, the hope, the excitement of the resurrection. And it's a beautiful thing. And sometimes we don't feel that way. Sometimes we catch wind of the resurrection and we are immediately doubtful. And we're immediately in tears because so much has happened this year. 
Jesus' response to his friends' postures that were much like these on the first Easter Sunday, his response was, stop your crying and, and be happy. Put on your Easter hat. Stop, stop doubting. Stop asking questions and just be happy I'm alive. Jesus' response was simply, I see you. I hear you. I'm with you. You of little faith, do you see me? Go tell the others. Sometimes I pray for a slap in the face, then I beg to be spared, cause I'm a coward. If there's a master of death, I bet he's holding his breath, so show the blind and tell the deaf about his power. I'm a doubting Thomas. Can't keep my promises Cause I don't know what's safe For me of a little faith Can I be used to help and I'm scared that I'll find proof that it's a lie. Can I be laid down a trail dropping breadcrumbs to prove that I'm not ready to die? Please give me time to decide the signs. Please forgive me for time. I'm a doubting Thomas, I'll take your promise, for I know nothing's safe. Oh, me of a little faith, oh, me of a little faith.
So as Molly said, uh, we enter into this Resurrection Sunday early on this first day, carrying with us uh, a multitude of things, uh, doubt, maybe grief, maybe mourning uh, for many different things over the past year or so. But we also come early on this first day uh, with the hope of resurrection. And the question that I begin this part of the teaching with is this. And we've asked this question a lot of different angles over the past year. Uh, It's kind of been our question, thematically our question of the year. If the resurrection is true, okay, if the tomb is really empty, what does that make possible? Especially when we are to overcome our grief and our mourning and our doubt. We actually asked that question of a few people in our community. What does the resurrection make possible? And they were kind enough to make us little, just a few seconds uh, long videos. Here are your answers to that question. What does the resurrection make possible? Because of the resurrection, families can try again. Relationships can be restored. People can heal and they can take part in making something new with those that they may have hurt. The resurrection makes hope viable and it makes change possible. The resurrection is an invitation for us to join our creator in the renewal of all things. The resurrection frees us to enjoy and savor this life, this world, and the people we get to share it with. Because of the resurrection, I know that there is more, that this is not the end, it's just the beginning, and it just keeps getting better, and that will never end. And that creates an excitement, a a passion for life that would not be possible without the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus makes possible a deep hope that the God of creation really is making all things new, even dead things come to life. The resurrection of Jesus makes possible a unity in diversity, diversity of opinions, even diversity of beliefs, values, and dreams. And this sort of unity, we can rally around the resurrection of Jesus and how his sacrifice as well as triumph, gives all of us hope for a future life after life after death. The resurrection makes possible an unswervingly deep hope. What does the resurrection make possible? I think it makes shalom possible, that no matter how broken, how dark things are, God is with us, and his deepest desire is to bring us together. So, I actually think in some ways, every time I get to teach, I'm wrestling around with that question. That question, what does the resurrection make possible? Or another way to say it is every time I'm teaching, I'm asking what does the resurrection, if it's true, and and I, I get that not everybody buys that, and even in our community, but if the resurrection is true, what does it really mean for my life? And so that is the question that every time I get to share, I think ultimately, deep down, underlying, I'm wrestling with. And today, as I wrestle with that question, and actually for the last few weeks, I have been drawn to the book of Ephesians for some reason. Never taught Ephesians for Resurrection Sunday, anything like that, but specifically chapter one of Ephesians. Because I think the whole book uh, of Ephesians is actually Paul telling us 
what kind of life the resurrection makes possible. I think that's the big picture here. So a few weeks ago, on the day we in our community eat the most holy of foods, cheesecake, uh, I read this quote on that Cheesecake Sunday. The real crisis at the heart of humanity is a lack of imagination. The real crisis at the heart of humanity is the lack of imagination. Now life, in all the good things and all the bad things that it throws at us, uh, there is a fair amount of brokenness. Uh, seems like a lot of that this past year. Hence the mourning and the grief and those types of things. And I believe that these different levels of brokenness actually shrink our imaginations. And I think these few scriptures that I want to read this morning from the book of Ephesians addresses this real crisis, this, this real crisis of, of lack of, hum, uh, of imagination. And these words help us to imagine what the resurrection makes possible. So Ephesians 1, I'm just going to read a few verses. And right after a quick introduction, we encounter this giant run-on sentence in Ephesians 1. It's a, in the original language, in the Greek, it's a 201-word run-on sentence. Uh, one scholar called it the most monstrous sentence conglomeration I've ever met in the Greek language. Probably. But I think it's breathtaking. Here's verse 3. It's on the screen. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus, the Anointed One, who grants us every spiritual blessing in these heavenly realms where we live in the Anointed, not because of anything we have done, but because of what He has done for us. God chose us to be in relationship with Him, even before He laid out plans for this world. This all began before creation. That's what that verse tells us. Stretching out God's purpose for His family beyond the beginning of space and time. He always wanted this for us. Verse 5, also on the screen. He destined us to be adopted as His children through the covenant Jesus the anointed inaugurated in His sacrificial life. This was His pleasure and His will for us. Ultimately, God is the one worthy of praise for showing us His grace. He is merciful and marvelous, free, freely giving us these gifts, gifts in His beloved. Verse 7. Visualize this. His blood flowing freely down the cross, setting us free. We are forgiven for our sinful ways by the richness of His grace, which has poured all over us. One translation says, lavished on us. With all wisdom and insight, He has enlightened us to the great mystery at the center of His will. With immense pleasure, He laid out His intentions through Jesus. So Paul, Paul is always talking about this Jesus as revealing something that has always been at work in the universe. Now, for many people, in their understanding of Jesus and like how Jesus got into the story, Jesus was always inserted into the story much later. You know, like when everything got screwed up and God didn't know what to do. Oh, what shall I ever do to save humanity? Oh, I know. And a light bulb goes over cartoon God's head. What Paul is saying here is something different than that ideal, or that idea that people have. He is saying that Jesus is the revealing of something that has been in works the whole time. So John 1, Colossians 1, all kinds of passages talk about that. And so when we talk about Jesus, we are not talking about some solution that God cooked up at the last minute to try to get us out of this mess, you know, like a episode of I Love Lucy or The Big Bang Theory, depending which generation of television you come from. That's not what we're talking about here. We are talking about the revelation in flesh and blood of a mystery 
a truth, a reality that has been present in the very fabric of creation creation the whole time. Verse 9 on the screen. With immense pleasure, he laid out his intentions through Jesus. A plan that will climax when the time is right as he returns to create order and unity, both in heaven and on earth, when all things are brought together under the anointed's royal rule. So that phrase there, as you can see on the screen, all things are brought together, can be translated two different ways, or actually multiple ways, but two other ways are there at the bottom. To gather up all things in Him, to be summed up. So the gathering up of all things in Him in Jesus. That is this plan, this mystery that has been set forth by God. Uh, G.B. Caird is his name, says that in Jesus, the entire universe will one day find its full explanation and rationale. Its principle of cohesion. Think of that line. Principle of cohesion. So I guess another way to translate that, in Jesus, it's all going to make sense. Principle of cohesion. It's all going to come together. Now, uh, probably five or six years ago, as a community, if you're around crossings, this phrase to gather up all things in Him or all things are brought together, uh, we spent a lot of time on that phrase. Uh, some of you have a t-shirt uh, like this one. If you can see this here, okay? And so this is the phrase, anake fe leosathai. Uh, it is a Greek word. If you hear that little giggle, do you hear it? That's brag giggling at my Greek pronunciation. So uh, I, I did okay, considering I usually screwed up royally. So this, this word, anake phileosathai, is a 19-letter word. See, you see it on the screen here? It, by the way, if you play Scrabble with this word, it's a major win. Seriously, if you lose after you play that, so it means to gather up all things in Him. So our T-shirts, again, I'll hold this up for you. It, it has the word on it, but then it says here, which you probably cannot see, It says, to be summed up. To be summed up, which I think is the best translation of this word. Okay, so to help you understand, to help me understand what this means, think of an equation like this. So, okay, see the numbers here on the screen. You have 637 divided by 3, subtract 197, multiply it by 2, and subtract 18. The answer, of course, you probably all have at the tip of your tip of your heads there, you would say the answer, of course, is 12. Now, here's the thing. What 12 is, is 12 is summed up of the whole equation, is the sum of the whole equation. You took, you took all of it, all these numbers, the, the 637, 3, 197, 2, 18. You took all those numbers, you subtracted, you multiplied, you added up, you took it all, and it summed up to 12. So if you use this word for that equation, what we are saying is that we're taking all of those numbers in one in equation and summing it up in one number. A number, 12, that brings unity to all the other numbers in the equation. Now, don't get lost in the math. That's not the point. The point is, I believe what Paul is saying in Ephesians 1 is what God is doing in Jesus is bringing everything into a unity, into a cohesion. Paul is saying in Jesus, 
this thing that has been there since the beginning of time, he is summing everything up in Jesus. It's all one story from beginning to end summed up in Jesus. Jesus is the principle of cohesion. Jesus, for me, makes sense of it all. And this is how the world is put back together. In T. Wright, the New Testament scholar, we quote all the time, just a genius. He says this, The Christian belief is not that some people sometimes get raised from the dead, and Jesus just happens to be one of them. It is precisely that people don't ever get raised from the dead, and that something new has happened in and through Jesus, which has blown a hole through previous observations. This isn't because there was an odd glitch in the cosmos or something peculiar about Jesus' biochemistry, but because the God who made the world and who called Israel to be the bearer of His rescue operation for the world was at work in and through Jesus all along to remake the world. So what does the resurrection make possible? Well, the resurrection was this dramatic launching of the remaking of the world project. Do not let someone shrink death and resurrection down to a nice little selfish doctrine that you can fit into your glove compartment, void and siphoned out of all imagination. This is about the restoration of all things. This is about the healing of all things. This is about restored and renewed to what it was intended to be, whole healing for the whole person, for the whole world. That's what we're talking about. If this is all true, and all this is made possible, then what the heck are we supposed to do with our resurrected life in the here and the now? We have this life, again, here and now, not in the sweet by and by someday. We have this resurrected life here and now. If we have it, we don't want to waste it. Even in the midst of a pretty sucky and crappy 13 to 14 months of worldwide pandemic, we cannot waste what God has been trying to bring to life. So over this past year or so, if you've not been taking the time to ask the question, what am I to do with this resurrected life? What does the resurrection make possible? If you haven't taken the time to do that, you need to get on it now. We need to get on it now. We don't want to go back to the old life. We don't want things to remain as they've been. We have a resurrection life to live into, a new creation, even in our grief, even in our mourning, even in our doubting. The resurrection of Jesus should do something radically new in each and every one of us. The resurrection makes possible a life beyond our wildest imaginations. Or as Paul wrote in Ephesians 3, Now to the God who can do so many awe-inspiring things, immeasurable things, things greater than we can ever ask or imagine through the power at work in us, to Him be all glory to the, in the church and in Jesus the anointed from this generation to the next forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, may we grasp the imagination that you give us. May we grasp the truth of what it means to live a resurrected life. That in Jesus, who draws it all together, may we find a way to move forward into this new creation. May we ask the right questions in the midst of our grief, in the midst of our mourning, in the midst of our doubt. 
may we find ourselves overwhelmed by the awe-inspiring and measurable things that are greater than any of us could ever ask or imagine through the power of a living God who raised Jesus from the dead, who summed it all up in him. May we find ourselves in that place. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Well, a uh, common meal, this bread, this body, this juice, this blood. What we're going to ask you to do is we, we want you to take a moment and allow yourselves to be drawn into this Jesus. This one who sums it all up. To be drawn into and celebrate his life and his teachings and the way he loved people and be drawn into his death, uh, his burial, and into his resurrection. In this meal, as we sing this next song together, we ask you to draw close to this Jesus 